Hi, my name is Gigi Fernandez, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Welcome and thank you for coming and listening to my podcast, Level Playing Field. Level Playing Field is a podcast hosted by myself, Randy Boos, where I interview LGBT sports personalities and athletes. Before we get to the episode with Gigi Fernandez, I want to talk about my internal struggle I have with this podcast. Is this a podcast where I talk to a gay athlete or personality? Or is this a podcast where I talk to an athlete or personality who happens to be gay? I'm sort of thinking it's the latter, and this episode is an example of that. This week with Gigi, I, I obviously ask about coming out and her growing up in Puerto Rico. We talk about Puerto Rico statehood and what it would mean for her and for millions of Puerto Ricans who support statehood in the United States. I hope you enjoy this episode with Gigi. At the end, there is a special guest appearance by her wife, Jane Geddes. Jane is a former LPGA player. She is also a former VP at WWE. But without further ado, here is the episode with Gigi Fernandez. Thank you, Gigi, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's get started. What was it like growing up in Puerto Rico? Um, it was interesting, you know, it's the sixties and seventies back in, you know, an island in the middle of the Caribbean. Um, I mean, I had a pretty nice upbringing. My dad was a doctor, so I was among the lucky est, I feel that was able to, um, you know, travel a bit to the, to the United States and enjoy that and be able to participate in tournaments in the United States. And I think if Puerto Rico had not been a part of the United States Dance Association, I think would be talking or having a very different story. So I was very lucky that uh, Puerto Rico was part of the USDA, the Puerto Rico Tennis Association, and I was able to play play tournaments here in, in the United States. And but it was hard because I was the only girl, or I, I I didn't find any role models. I didn't I didn't there wasn't any other Hispanic uh, or Latina girls that I could say I want to be like her. So I was in a way just sort of blazing my own trail, trying to find my way in a in a very um very male dominated if you would say society um i was raised to get married and have kids uh, that was what i was supposed to do and that's not what i wanted to do so that's not what i did but um but it was definitely i was definitely fighting against the powers that be since i was a, a very little girl how did you first get involved in tennis my parents played uh, we were uh, we just belonged to the racket club and my, I have two older brothers, and they would go. Uh, they would, you know, we would all go after school sometimes or on the weekends, and they would take lessons. And I would just start hitting against the wall. And I had a God-given talent that showed very early in life. I was very coordinated, and um, and I just wanted to be my brothers, so I just always kept asking <laughs> for lessons. Uh, and eventually, I I did get my lessons, and eventually, I did did beat my brothers, but. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a nice nice way to be raised. Did you always hold that over your your brother's head then that you were better than them in tennis? Uh, probably when I was little. But after that, they became my biggest supporters, and they were they were great. They were um, 
super proud of of me and my accomplishments. Um, but you know, it's t- typical sibling rivalry that if it was not going to come out in tennis, it was going to come out in some other form. <laughs> oh yeah, what was the age difference between you and your brothers? So uh, I, have, I have an older brother who's two two years older, and a younger brother who's one and a half years younger, and then I have another sister. So we were my when my thought my younger sister was born my older oldest brother was five so we were four kids between the ages of newborn and five so um it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of fights <laughs> as you can <laughs> i can imagine um, my brothers are four and six years older than me and we still would fight so yeah uh, just what brothers do right or siblings yeah oh yeah of course you found success early in tennis you talked about it being a natural fit for you at the age of 12, you'd win your, was it your first championship? The yeah, Puerto Rican I was doubles? 12, yeah, I had, I had two memorable things happen at 12. The first one was that I made the finals of the USDA 12 and under nationals in doubles. Um, and the second one was that I made the finals of the uh, Puerto Rico national championship in the adult division. So very early on, it was pretty evident that I had just a unnatural, uncanny ability to really understand the doubles court and play doubles at a high level. So, so yeah, lucky for me that I found that really early and then, and then sort of followed my passion throughout, which, and I'm still following my passion of doubles. So it's been a long, long career. What makes a good doubles player? Um, I think probably there's two things. One's tennis and one's not. The first tennis one is that you have to have this skill set, right? You have to have good volleys. You have to have good hand coordination. You have to be good at the net. Uh, you have to be brave up there. You have to be willing to take chances. Uh, so that's from the kind of like the tennis perspective. And, and then from the uh, psychological perspective, you have to be a good communicator. You have to um, be able to play with different partners and you have to know what to say to your partners and so you can bring out the best in them and have uh, find a way to have good chemistry with them. And I think I had um, I had both of those. So and that's why I ended up winning so much. When you talked about, you mentioned already about you know, not wanting to get married to a man, obviously, not having kids. Was that because of your sexuality, you think? Or was that just something else in you? Well, before I was not aware yet of my sexuality, but I always knew that I was always the sporty one in my class. Like I was always, you know, the jock and the athlete. Um, but I was, I was still thought that's what I would do. I mean, I, I really didn't think I would be a professional tennis player until I became a professional tennis player. In <laughs> fact, um, my freshman year, uh, I, I was recruited to go play at Clemson University, and on my my freshman year, I um, made the finals at NCAA's, and I lost to a girl who supposedly was ranked 27th in the world in the WTA tour. Now, if you think back to the 80s, you probably before you were born, there were no. Oh no, I was born in the 70s. So okay, good. So there were in the 80s. There were no. There was no internet. There was no computers. There was no. Um, I mean, how do you verify when somebody's saying they're ranked 27th in the world, right? Mm-hmm. it's it's no no database you can go look at there's so it was sort of like the word on the street was that this girl was supposedly a really good pro playing in the college ranks so uh a couple after i lost to her in the finals of ncaa's which the match was seven six and a third and i had a couple match points a couple months later i'm watching wimbledon and she was playing with against billie jean king in the round of 16 on the center court and she almost beat her and I thought, Jeez. oh, my God, that's that girl that I played. <laughs> <laughs> I actually maybe have a chance to be a pro. And she's like in the round of 16 at Wimbledon. So, so it was a very different time. You know, nowadays, kids, 
I mean, Jesus, look at Coco Goff. You know, she's 15 and she's already made a superstar. That that would not have happened. And even if she had these results, that wouldn't have happened uh, in the 80s or 90s because we didn't have social media and we didn't have the internet. We didn't have any of that. So, well, but, yeah, and it, what, it was in the early 90s, Jennifer Capriati was the, you know, 13-year-old phenom. And she, I think she was probably yeah. the first young one that really garnered the attention from the media. Correct. And by then we already had computers, right? So there were still, I mean, it was in the infancy uh, in the early nineties, but still I remember having cell phones even like back, you know, I'm talking before cell phones even, even when I was um, coming up the college rank, college ranks. In fact, I used to, when I used to travel, I used to print out a list of all the hotels I was going to stay for the next, you know, 10 weeks. So my parents could find me because there was no way for them to call me. There was no cell phones. Um, but yeah, Jennifer was definitely the first one to start getting the media attention. And, and because there was already internet, people could start to follow her globally. And yes, she was definitely the first kind of young phenom that, that, um, you know, that of that, of that caliber, at least, you know, actually, let me, before I jump ahead to your, your pro time, let me go back to, to college. How did you choose Clemson? They chose me. They, um, they, uh, the, lady who recruited me her name was mary king and she saw me play at nationals i guess and she started she called me she called me like every day and it's funny you know how you make decisions when you're a kid i was being recruited by unc chapel hill and clemson heavily like i had narrowed it down to those two i was recruited from florida and california but i didn't want to go to either florida or california i wanted to go somewhere different and the, the frankly my decision was based on the fact that the clemson coach called me more that's why I went there. I had not visited either. I probably, if I had visited, I probably would have picked Chapel Hill because now, you know, I've been to both and uh, I think Chapel Hill was, would have been more appealing to me. But, um, but yeah, I love my, you know, I was there for one year and I had a great time, had a, you know, one year of college experience. And after the first year of making the finals on CLAs, I took the fall off. And after the fall, I was ranked uh, 87 in the world. So then in singles. So then it was, and I was higher than that in doubles. But at that point, it, it was time to turn pro. And I always knew that I could go back and finish my education. So so I just made the decision to turn pro. So when you first go in that freshman year, are you already thinking there's a chance you won't finish? Or did you go in no, 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 thinking no. you would finish? Like I said, I was not, you know, I was t- ranked probably around maybe I was top hundred in the country. I, I don't really remember, but I was definitely not a huge recruit. Um, I would play number two for my team. And not only did I play number two for my team, but the selection committee for the NCAAs made a mistake and admitted 65 people into the draw. And if you follow tennis, you know that a draw is 64, not 65. Mm-hmm. So two people had to play pre-qualifying to get into the main draw. And that was me. So I was the last person to get into the, into the tournament, ended up making it all the way to the finals. Oh, wow. Uh, six and a third to like the best player in, in college. And, and like I said, I had a match point. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, it was not really till I went to college. And, and I think the reason for this meteoric rise in my level was because for the first time in my life, I started playing tennis every day. I, in Puerto Rico, I just kind of practiced once in a while. Not, I didn't really have to f- force myself because I was, I would beat, and you know, I was number one in the world in my age group, and then two age groups above. So at twelve, I was one, and twelve, fourteen, sixteens. At fourteens, I was number one, and fourteen, sixteen, and eighteens. And then, um, so why practice where I'm already the best around? And then when I, so I, when I went to college and had this practice every day for the first time in my life, I practiced, you know, six days a week. Mm-hmm. My game just improved like dramatically, and. Uh, and then, you know, six months later, uh, after 
that NCAA final six months later, I already had turned. I had turned pro as the top 100 player in the world. And so you, you mentioned you played singles and doubles. Yes. I mean, obviously from a young age, were you you were were you finding more success in the doubles even at that point, or were you still thinking a singles career? Because even now, doubles is still sort of treated as you know, not I don't want to say like minor, but. <laughs> Yes, we're second. Those players are second-class citizens. Now, I've been talking about the fact that I have a chip on my shoulder at being a second-class citizen because Puerto Ricans are treated as second-class citizens. We can get into that a little bit later, but so do doubles players. We are sort of the sideshow. But the, but the fact is that my my career was mostly centered around getting better at singles. It's just that I did better in doubles. But I mean, I had a pretty good singles career. It was top twenty. Most of my career I was between top twenty and top thirty. I had a couple yeah, and- of where I would, you know drop in ranking but i usually was pretty good about getting it back into that into that range so i mean that's pretty respectable for for a career but when you compare it to number one in the world for five years or seven years then it kind of pales in comparison yeah and totally i mean you would reach and we'll talk about it but you'd reach the semis of wimbledon and and stuff like that so you definitely yeah. had a, a good singles career yeah quarter i made the quarterfinals of the u.s open twice and i would usually make the third round or i you know I had a lot of you know once once in a while it was early, but uh, it seemed like um, it seemed like the because I was so good, so good in doubles, my singles career would suffer, and that's really why I don't think I had a better singles career for that reason. Because when you're playing doubles, I was playing every weekend, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was playing. Then I would travel Monday and play a singles match on Tuesday. Whereas the girl that I was playing against, probably you know she was probably done Tuesday, Wednesday of that week, and then she flew to the place where. You know, she flew to the next city and then she was getting ready for three days to play singles. And then she play. I would play and I'd be like, oh, that was weird because <laughs> I just been playing doubles for three days. And it's completely different. I mean, there's completely different games. You hit different shots. So, um, so yeah, it was always hard to find the balance. And, um, you know, and I don't really have any regrets. I think I did I did the right thing for, for my skill set and obviously got the most out of, of my, my ability. So I have no, no complaints and no regrets. But... But um, but yeah, definitely not a bad career in singles, being top thirty in the world. But but when you're you know pales in comparison to the doubles, right? In 1981, I believe, um, Billie Jean King was outed. I think seven or eight months later, I think it was Martina Navratilova would come out on her own. Yeah. Where were you on your journey with your sexuality? Were you already comfortable with who you were? No. So I grew up in Puerto Rico. I, as you know, and Puerto Rico's, uh, I, I always say Puerto Rico's 20 years behind the times on any anything that happens in the United States or any movements or any social issues. So I grew up in a very homophobic uh, environment. Um, I, um, I mean, I won't go into the slurs, but we, it was definitely a homophobic environment and my upbringing was very homophobic. So when I first realized that I was gay, I had a hard time. I really had a struggled tremendously and I pretty much hated myself for probably for five years um, from the time that I realized that I was gay until uh, I met uh, my coach Julie Anthony who was my first coach my first um, she wasn't my first coach she was my the coach that I did most of my winning with uh, and I attribute that to the fact that she really helped me or taught me how to learn to love myself again and how to you know be okay with being who I was and um you know and my and it was really difficult with my parents because they did not accept 
my sexuality at all. Like my mom didn't talk to me for 12 years. Practically. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we spoke, I would call her Christmas, Mother's Day um, and her birthday. And that was it. Like we, I didn't go, I didn't go home visit. I didn't, I really didn't see her for 12 years. Um, so that was hard. I was, you know, trying to be a professional tennis player while dealing with this. And I remember um, there were times, you know, after I came out that there was, there was a period of four or five years where I just would not call my parents during Grand Slam. I would just not call even my dad or no, I would call no one in my family during Grand Slam because I didn't know at what point I would call and have an upsetting phone call. Um, and I didn't want to get, you know, down or depressed or just upset about about the conversation and then have to go play a match later that day or the next day. So, um, so yeah, I was fairly isolated from my family throughout, throughout that period. Um, and when was that? Cause when uh, did you come out to your parents? I came out in 89. Um, it, it was during a tournament in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico open. Um, and so yeah, I kind of gathered the family. My parents were divorced. So I had to tell, I told my, sister and my siblings i'm sorry my mom and my siblings in one setting and then i went and told my dad in a different one but it was during this one trip so so i purposely like this was the mission i i felt julie felt really strongly that i needed to come out to sort of let that loose that weight off the shoulders so i could sort of be free and uh play better and i don't know if the timing was right in hindsight it, it probably was not um but especially not during a tournament <laughs> but uh but there's never, there really never is the perfect time. Yeah, and with the tour, you're pretty much every week in a tournament, so. Correct, yeah. And then, you know, and then they always tell you, don't do it during the holidays. So the times that I would go yeah. home, <laughs> Christmas, Thanksgiving, like, don't want to ruin the holiday, right? So so, so I just bit the bullet and did it. And it was really painful for a lot of years, like I said. And But slowly but surely, it came around. And, um, and now, you know, it, it, even so even though my mom, I didn't talk to her for 12 years, it still took her another, I don't know how many, let's see, 90, 80, 90. when was 9-11? Let me think. It took her 14, 15 years to actually be around my, my partner. Really? And, yeah, and it took 9-11. And, you know, it's funny because the joke in my family was, it's going to take World War Three for her mom to ever um, meet your significant other. And um, the day after 9-11, she said, I'll meet Jane. Jane was my wife now. She said, I'll meet Jane. And I was like, sweet, great, finally, yay. So then that was um, that was September, of course. Well, the following Halloween, and not the not that October, but October a year after, um, we finally met. And the meeting was uh, my sister's Halloween celebration, and we were on the street. Uh, the kids were having a little kid parade, and we were on the street. Uh, and that's how my mom first met Jane and we've come a long way because now we're all like really best friends and we all I, I live we live in the same town and we're constantly with each other so I imagine uh, having really grandkids times. for her too also was a big deal well at first it was not because um because of how I had them you know because she she used to say um she used to tell me that that I should not have kids. She was against me being being a mother. She thought I should not bring two kids to the world in this, you know, us that would have two moms. Um, but again, this is uh, this is 
long time ago, right? And she's definitely come around. And this is a woman who is so religious. You know, she her faith has driven her life. I mean, she goes to church every Sunday religiously her entire life. So she was kind of coming from that that end. Um, you know, and I understand. Is, is it Catholicism? It, yeah, I mean, absolutely. yeah, one hundred percent. It's like her faith, her faith in God would not, and her faith in you know her Catholicism wouldn't really allow her to. Um, to accept and she has come a long way I mean she is fully supportive now she is 100% the greatest mom and the greatest grandmother And um, but while it was happening uh, it took a while put it that way it took a while but it's, it's great now That's so awesome. people listening that are struggling with their parents they do come around they mm -hmm. do come around because they in the end you're flesh and blood and they love you even though you don't think they love you right now um, they do love you. They're just struggling. They're struggling to let go of this vision that they had of what was best for you. And now that I'm a mom, I can look back and think, you know, oh God, my poor mom, she was just <laughs> struggling, you know, and she didn't have this, she didn't have the tools to, to really understand. And she didn't, um, believe in, you know, therapy. So she, she wouldn't, she, in fact, she actually sent me to the therapist. She's like, she, she thought that I that I should go see a therapist, so I would kind of turn, you know, so I could get therapized away from being gay. And it was like, really, so like the conversion therapy type stuff. Yeah, yeah. She tried, she tried that. I said, I'll because it was like I wanted her to go see someone to get help with it, and she said, okay, I'll go see someone if you go see someone. So she went to my whoever I recommended, and I went to the person that she recommended, and the person that she recommended was this middle-aged, you know, overweight, out of shape man. Not, <laughs> not that that mattered, but that's my recollection of him. And he tried to tell me that, um, that I was needed to change. And he's, he put me through some test. I don't know what, remember what it was, but, um, but he was like, yeah, you can pretty much convince yourself that you're not gay and, and start dating guys and you'll be fine. And I was like, I don't think so. But I'll, you know, <laughs> It doesn't work that way. Even after I was first gay, I went back and, and dated guys. Um, I mean, I dated guys three, four, I don't know how many I dated, but I did dated um, a handful of guys even while after I had come out. So, Oh, really? I was trying, I was trying to be straight, but in the end, it's like... Was that you know, for your parents? What's that? Was that for your parents, you think? Um, no, it was just how I was raised. It was just like the society's norm. And back in the eighties, it just was, and nineties was just not cool to be gay. It's before. Oh Melissa, yeah. Melissa Etheridge came out. And, um, if that was a big deal back when Melissa Etheridge came out and it was the first sort of, it's okay to be a lesbian, um, movement. So, but before that, it was like, you know, and let's be, let's be frank. I mean, it, it's a lot easier to be straight. I mean, I don't think anybody purposely chooses it right i mean you, you you are who you are you feel what you feel but would i have liked to have to have a husband that i could hold hands with and feel comfortable uh back in the 90s and you know would i'd love my, for my kids to have a dad absolutely but that's just not who i am so um so I, you just have to accept who you are and love who you are and um you know understand that we're all doing the best we can and uh, and just try to be happy because we have one life to live and this is it. Yeah. I mean, I would love to not have the years of depression I had, the anxiety, the, right. I mean, suicidal thoughts for me. I mean, so exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's a, a choice. 
Right. And and I think that moving forward, I I hope that as a nation we're and I think we've come a long way that we're more accepting of people and their choices. And but there's still there's still the the you know super conservative right wing Republicans <laughs> mostly <laughs> that uh that still you know cannot see beyond traditional family values and not don't understand that families are made up of all kinds of different um all kinds of different families are all different there it's not just a man and a woman and, and two kids there's single parents there are kids being raised by grandparents there's two dads two moms that's the composition of america that's who we are today and uh, i wouldn't have it any other way yeah when you enter the tour and you're one of your first so like i said i was born in the 70s i fell in love with tennis in the early 80s you know on the men's side my favorite player was Yvonne Lendl for some reason I, I still don't know why I, I chose him um but I watched you know Jimmy Jimmy Connors John McEnroe Mons mm. Lander. on the women's side it was you know Martina Chrissy Everett you Mary Jo Fernandez I mean so many of these names that I, I grew up watching what was it like for you to partner with Martina Navratilova in 85 well, that was kind of life changing because Martina, she was my idol. You know, she was the person that I looked up to that I wanted to be like her because she was number one in the world and she was, you know, kicked everybody's ass. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Oh, no, no worries. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I wanted to be like her. And when she picked me to play with her, it was like changed my life because she, here's the best player in the history of tennis asking me to play doubles with her. And it's like, wow, she must think I'm good, right? Otherwise, she wouldn't pick me. So, I got so much confidence from that. And yeah, so that's pretty, pretty groundbreaking for my career. Now she's out at the time. Did you have any fear of being linked to her? Yeah. Because of her sexuality? I I was, and I didn't care, frankly, because, you know, it was so good for my career. You do, you do what's best for your career. And, and to be asked to play with the number one, those player in the world, that's pretty epic right there. You know, number one. Oh yeah, totally. In the world, the best player in the world. In the world, the history of the world at the time, so so it didn't matter. Yeah, I, I could I could imagine being a young person on the tour and having Martina Navratilova contact you and say, "Yeah, I want to play with you in doubles." I know it was like what? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't say yes fast enough. Oh and yeah, that wracking, you know, because then if you win, it's because you're playing Martina, and if you lose, it's because of you. So yeah. I really did not enjoy it. I mean, I did it, and it was great, but I didn't particularly enjoy playing with Martina and I I don't know that hopefully if she hears this or not um it's a lot of pressure playing with her I'm sure she has dealt with it with all her partners um some people rise to the occasion some people don't um but it's definitely a lot of pressure playing with the best player in the world oh yeah and then your first success was uh or you know first major you won I should say was with Laurie McNeil um no it's Robin White actually my first oh was it my first tournament, man, I've been with Laurie McNeil, but, but the, I won the 1988 Wimbledon, um, U.S. Open, rather, with Robin White. That was my first. Oh, I thought it was Laurie McNeil. No, it's Robin White, 88. Um, yeah, we actually beat Martina and Pam in the semis. Um, and that was uh, that was a big win because we they were they were, had just lost a 108-match win streak at, the, at Wimbledon. 108-match win streak. That's crazy. That's a lot of tournaments. losing. Uh, or three years, I don't know exactly. I should find out exactly how many years. But um, 
but yeah, I was never the best team by far, and we ended up beating them in the semis and then winning. What was it like to to beat your former partner? I mean, I imagine that would happen occasionally throughout your career. I I don't think you think of them as your for, former partner. You just think of them as somebody that's in between you and the next round. Um, so you just try to beat whoever's on the other side and try to not think about it too much. I mean, sometimes there is like that vendetta. Like, there's definitely players that I had vendettas against. Uh, particularly somebody would like stop wanting to play with me and then I would play them the next time then I was going after right I, I really had uh, an inkling but what was different with Martina because Martina I always knew that my partnership with her was temporary because she and Pam um, were a team and, and Pam was hurt she had shoulder surgery so that's how I got to play with her so oh, okay yeah I was never I never, always knew that it wasn't going to be a full-time thing so um, and and yeah so no there was not none of that against her it was always pure admiration and pure like oh my god you're god and i'm on the same court with you <laughs> so yeah and then what brought you and uh julie anthony as partners uh, so as i i worked i moved to aspen to um train with julie uh, on the request of my then agent fred charf and um i just fell in love with aspen and at the time chris ever martina navratilova uh andrea yeager and myself all lived in aspen and it was just an amazing, beautiful place. I'm sure everybody who's heard of Aspen or been to Aspen can relate. But once you, once I had the opportunity to live there, I just never left. Um, so, and then Julie became my coach and my partner for uh, a bunch of years. And um, so, yeah, that was that's why I was there. How much did she help your your career? You think? Oh, it was huge. It was. She was very. Like I said, she was the first person to help me accept myself and that was that was epic right i mean to have somebody come in your life and and finally help you uh be, be okay with who you are and help you love yourself because you can't be successful at anything if you don't love yourself oh you know? yeah so i i found this quote that she had that she said of you um, i'm going to read it real quick it says there's a real childish narcissistic selfish controlling part of her but there's also a very sweet, big-hearted, kind side to her. Yeah, pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to be self-centered to be a professional, to be a successful athlete. One hundred percent, you are the center of the little universe that you're living in, and everything else kind of revolves around it. Otherwise, and you can ask any tour pro, and they'll all say the same thing. I mean, that's just how it works. And especially back then, now there's more of a sense of a team now um, on tour. Like the players definitely. Uh, have more reliance on their team uh, and the teams are bigger but back when I was playing it was just the player and and then everybody else kind of doing something for them and trying to help them get to where they you know be as best as they could be but yeah she was part of my team and I had a, a coach Peter Moore was uh, the guy that was my hitting partner slash coach so the three of us kind of were very successful together so good good memories of that time that's good. You know, you, earlier you talked about you, you had like an attitude, a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, obviously, during your time in the WTA, you had some, some conflicts with them, with tournaments and officials. As a woman, did you, did you ever feel you were treated differently than like, let's say John McEnroe, who's famous for his, his outbursts and... Um, I was not treated differently by the powers that be. Like I, I would get fine equally as him, but I just think it, it, it's always 
less okay for a woman to have an outburst than it is for a man. Like if a guy has an outburst, it's like, oh, well, he had an outburst. And if, you know, if a girl does it, it's like, oh, that's some lady. Like, oh, my God, look at her. Like, you know, like the whole thing with Serena last year when she played Naomi. And, and you know, to me, that was just deplorable because her, not just her behavior was bad, but how it was handled and how, you know, I really felt strongly that there that it, that if that had been a guy, the situation would have been different. And that was just my opinion about the the situation. So I do think there's a double standard, not just in tennis, but in life, like um, women who are outspoken and verbal and um, are often referred to as the B word, right? Where, mm-hmm. Whereas if a guy is like that, it's like, that's okay. That's definitely a double standard. Like for me watching this year's open, it's been interesting how that outburst last year is still brought up. I know. <laughs> Well, we're back at the U.S. Open, right? So it's you, you knew it, it had to be, you knew it was going to come up because this is just a time of the year. So you one year anniversary from it. But yeah, but it seems like it comes up a lot. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I, I just see it more than. Yeah, I don't know. Let me go back to your career, though, and ask about um, the Olympics. I am a big fan of the Olympics. Um, Barcelona in 92. NBC had this triple cast. I don't know if you ever remember it because you were a, a player and you were involved. But they had a thing where you can actually get more Olympic coverage and pay for it. And I was one of the rare people that did it. Um, but what was it like for Barcelona to be your first Olympics? Um, well, it actually was not my first Olympics. I played in Puerto Rico. I played for Puerto Rico in the 84 games in Atlanta. Um, and that was... Uh, that Wait, so I, 84 so I in L- LA? In LA, yeah. 84 LA, I played for Puerto Rico. Um, and that experience was kind of weird because it, uh, tennis was an exhibition sport that year. And I missed the opening ceremonies because I was playing in the finals of the Virginians of Newport. So I, I flew from Newport to LA. And then like I was there for one day and I played a match and lost and left the next day. So it was I didn't have a great Olympic experience there. But the... the um, Barcelona was the first one that where it was a, a you know a true a true Olympic sport with with um, not an exhibition sport if you which uh, which is what LA was and it was a great it was great I mean probably one of the highlights top three highlights of my career was walking into the opening ceremonies just that feeling of walking into that stadium is it's pr- it was pretty incredible with everybody chanting USA USA it was pretty cool I'll never forget that. Yeah, we went to I went to Barcelona for the first time a few years ago, and even just to see, you know, the signs for the old Olympic Village, and I mean, it was a big deal. So I can't imagine actually being in it. And then during the ter- the tennis tournament itself, you partnered with Mary Jo Fernandez. I did. What? How did that partnership come about? Did you play with her before the Olympics, or was this just an Olympic partnership? This was just an Olympic partnership, and because I was playing already with Natasha at the time. Um, Natasha Ferreira, which is my main partner, the one I won 14 Grand Slams with. Um, but of course she was from Belarus and I was from uh, the US, so that was not an option. Um, I was the number one doubles player in the world at the time uh, already. So it was basically gonna be me and the next, you know, the, the best American that played singles because um, there, there were only three people on the team. I'm trying to think if it was three and a doubles player or two and a doubles player. Um, let me think for a minute. Well, we could see who was on the team, but I think it was Jennifer 
Mary Jo, and I think there's one more else and me. So of the three players that played singles, then who would play, who was going to be the best doubles player? And it was Mary Jo. But she, she went to the Olympics to play singles. And then, of course, we played doubles because she was the best doubles player. So we gave us the best chance. Now it's different. Now they go in as team. Mm-hmm. Now they, um, you know, they, they, like, they try to pair a team together with something that makes sense. But, but yeah, no, it was, it was great. Mary Jo was great because she was calm. She, was, she had great demeanor on the court. Um, and her game, obviously, was you know, excellent. She was very steady. Uh, she had very reliable returns. And she was really solid at the net. So, yeah, we were definitely not the favorites. We were seen at seventh, I believe, or eighth. Um, and uh, we, we ended up winning. So it was pretty – that was a fun time. And then during that time, during the first Olympics, that's when your partnership with, like you said, Natasha came about. And you guys were together for, what, four or five years? We played from um, 92 to 97, so five years. <sighs> And we won 14 Grand Slams in five years, which is how many Grand Slams Venus and Serena have won in 20 years. That's great. And you were ranked number one in doubles for a long time, right? That time, pretty much. I was either one or two that entire time. What and, Do you have, like, your favorite Grand Slam moments? Do you have, like, a favorite tournament? Um, my favorite Grand Slam win was the first Wimbledon. And the reason that that was so meaningful was not just because it was the first Wimbledon, which of course is meaningful enough, but it was because we were playing against, so Natasha and I were playing against Larissa and Yana in the previous year. I was playing with Yana and she was playing with Larissa. And after that final, they both dumped us to get together. So they, they literally, when I put my rackets down after we lost the match and we had um, Yana double fault at a match point and, we had just won the French Open and we're in the finals of Wimbledon and she dove wants a match point and she tells me after we get our trophy, she tells me she doesn't want to play with me anymore. Oh, and I was geez. like, what? are you crazy? I'm like, wait a second. I should dump you because you don't fault it, not me. Right? <laughs> um, so she dumped me and her and Larissa dumped Natasha. So the following Wimbledon, we, the dumpers played the dumpees. So how bad do you think we wanted to win that match? Um, so that was probably my most gratifying Grand Slam win. I would say we, we won that. I could imagine. Yeah. So that was, yeah. And it's, plus it was the first Wimbledon and you always want, everybody dreams of winning Wimbledon. That's the one that every, everybody Oh wants. yeah. For me as a fan, Wimbledon's like my top tournament. Right. Closely by US Open, but yeah. So then you have all these successful moments with, with Natasha. And then in 96, you go to Atlanta. Yep. And once again, you're partnered with Mary Jo. Yep. What's it like being in the home country, playing for the U.S.? What was that like? How do you compare that to Barcelona the previous four years ago? Um, it was stressful. It was definitely um, a lot harder to defend than it was to win the first time around. Because now you know what you're doing, right? Now it's like uh, pressure's on and you're... So yeah, I didn't. I didn't really didn't enjoy that one as much as the first one. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> I did not. And then there's also the bombing, right? In the was it the um, Olympic you know, Square or something just, like that? There was a bombing, but that was you know you, you're so focused when you're playing. Like that was not a part of. I mean, yes, there was a bombing, and it was like, oh, there's a bombing, and it was horrible. But then you're like, still got to go play, right? So so that wasn't part of of and. and 
that was did not affect me. I was, and it's maybe horrible to say, but I wasn't staying and I was staying, the tennis players were, were all staying out near the tennis. So we were not kind of in, in the center of Atlanta. So yeah, so I don't think that really affected much of it. But, but then once again, you'd get the gold medal. I, I have this question for you. Being Puerto Rican, being representing the United States, and then even now Puerto Rico not being an official state, more like property. Right. How did, was there ever like a, I don't know, not regrets representing the United States, but did you ever feel torn? I didn't have a choice. And that's what people don't understand. Like, first of all, the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association and all Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. The requirement to play the Olympics is that your country must have sports, like uh, they, must they must have a Fed Cup team, meaning you have to be a country that's identified by the International Tennis Federation, the ITF. Mm -hmm. So up to 1991, Puerto Rico had no Fed Cup team because Puerto Rico is part of the USDA. So there's a movement in the early 90s to have Puerto Rico accepted into the, to the ITF so that we would have our own teams. But that was sort of in process while the Olympics were happening. I had represented the United States in 1987 uh, in the Whiteman Cup, um, or 1987, 1989, 1987 rather. I had represented the U.S. Uh, 1987, so I had already established myself as an American player in, in 87. So when Barcelona came around, not only was I already an American or had already represented or you know represented the United States, therefore was. Uh, a U.S. player, but there was not another Puerto Rican. If I even if I could have played for Puerto Rico, there was not another player. There was not other Puerto Rican that played tennis that would uh, have allowed us to get into the Olympics. There was no like 300 rank pro or 500 rank pro, mm -hmm. let alone win right. But there was just not one. I mean, I don't even know there was no one. <laughs> Maybe there was a college player, but we couldn't have gotten in because you have to get into the Olympics. You can't just say I'm going to the Olympics. You have to be good. You have to have a ranking. You have to um, take, you know, you have to deserve to be in. So I didn't have a choice. And people to this day, don't forgive me. And to this day, they don't want to understand that. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to admit it. And then they don't want to forgive me. So yes, I am very upset about it because uh, it's something that I've lived with for my entire life. And, um, you know, it's almost, like, it's almost like I'm punished for being good enough to play for the U.S., and you're saying Puerto Ricans are so mad at you? Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, go on social media and read. It's constant. It's like, even to this day, I mean, even last week, like people like, I'll write a post completely unrelated. I'll just be like, oh, here I am with my family, blah, blah, blah. And then if you look at the comments, yeah, but you're still not the first Puerto Rican to win a world medal. Monica Puig is. I mean, it's constant. You can go in and you can go read. So then finally, you know, like about a month and a half ago, I was like, I was so upset after this whole thing with the, the governor and the corruption in Puerto Rico and the whole scandal, um, you know, and I joined the, I joined the, the cause of asking him to resign because I just felt like uh, he, he needed to, I mean, the people had spoken and he needed to resign. And, you know, when I did that, a lot of people, I gained the graces of a lot of people, like there were a lot of people who were supportive. Um, so it kind of started to turn on social media, people kind of liking me again. Um, but then all of a sudden people thought that I was becoming a, a pro independence person. It's like, and I was like, no, 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 no. Listen, just because I asked for Ricky to resign doesn't mean that I don't want the U.S. to be a state. I have been pro statehood 
my entire life. And I still think Puerto Rico should be a state because it's the only way that three and a half million Puerto Ricans who are U.S. citizens have the same rights as, as the other 280 million U.S. citizens. And why should there be a group of people that have less rights than others in this country? This is the year 2019. We're not living in the 60s anymore. And um, so I, well, that's why I become vocal, because I think it's disgraceful that we have three and a half million U.S. citizens that are treated differently than the rest of the rest of us. Why do you think Puerto Rico isn't a state? I mean, presidents have come out in the past. Bush, uh, Obama have all supported the idea of Puerto Rico becoming a state. Obviously, the current president, not so much. Well, I mean, isn't it all about politics? <laughs> right. So that's such a hard question to answer. I mean, I have three or four, um, three or four opinions about that. Is it uh, wrong to ask, this is, this is one of those questions I said, if you don't want me to ask, I won't, but is it wrong to say that possibly because the color of the skin of the, the people of Puerto Rico? Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely some, some, uh, discrimination involved. Uh, there's no question. I mean, for the president to say that he would adopt Greenland, he would take over Greenland when here he has, a country of three and a half million people have in many occasions voted for statehood who want to become a state. I mean, the overwhelming majority of Puerto Ricans want to become a state. And I wonder if we were blonde, blue eyed, if we were now a state and spoke English, if we would be a, a state. And I would, I would venture to say that absolutely without a doubt, if we were blonde, blue eyed and spoke English, Puerto Rico would be a state. Yeah. Cause like I said, presidents in the past have supported it. And I think what 2016 was the last major Puerto Rican election. And um, both. Yeah. No, 2017, two, this is two years ago was the last. There was a vote in 2012 and 2017, and both were overwhelmingly pro-statehood. The, the issue yeah, mo was, most of the candidates that won were pro-statehood, right? If not uh, all. The last candidate, Ricky was pro-statehood. The one before was not. The one before was. So it keeps switching. But from what I understand, um, there is a concern that the, represent the representatives and the senators that we send to Congress will balance the power, will sway the power one way or the other. So when the Democrats are in power, they don't want they um, they want a they want us to send Republicans. When the Republicans are in power, they're afraid that we'll send Democrats. So it's that's the sub that's 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 the real issue is that you know like I said, it's all about politics, right? And so we're, yeah, the we're unknown for politicians and five representatives, and I think we would be the twenty third. We would have the twenty third most representatives out of any state um and the other the other congress people don't want that they don't want it so and it's also right now we're in, well we we're in debt we have this huge debt crisis and we have now this social unrest that just took place so um you know some some ways it's the perfect time because clearly we we have the way that we have continued to be or the way that we have been for the last you know 52 years uh, has not worked, and that is the this status that we have of we're basically a colony. We're we are a territory. We are owned by the United States, and we are separate and unequal. And that is just in the year 2019. That's just remarkable to me that it this can still happen. Um, and yeah, and it's accepted by so many. It is, but it's not going to be because there's. Uh, uh, there's a movement starting that I think, uh, and I'm part of it, that is really going to push for for equality. We need equality for all Puerto Ricans, and um, and 
hopefully we can make it, I can make a change. I can help make a change. And that's, that's kind of what I'm committing to and have for the last couple of months. I'm committing to making a change for all Puerto Ricans. So hopefully it, it happens. Hopefully in my lifetime, Puerto Rico will be a state. Um, that would be a dream come true for me and a lot of um, millions and millions of Puerto Ricans. Yeah. And if Puerto Rico was a state, recovery from Hurricane Maria from 2017 would be drastically different. Correct. And not just that, but all there's so many things like that we are um, that we suffer from because we are not a state like we get less re, less reimbursements for Medicare and Medicaid, less Social Security. Our veteran wife, our veteran widows get less pension than American, you know, American based uh, widows. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And there's so many um, so many the, it, things are capped at different rates. It, it just list goes on and on. I mean, there's, listen, I've been reading reports for the last month about all the inequalities and it really, it, it really needs to be solved. And the solution is for Congress to accept us and Congress has to accept us. That's in the constitution. They, Congress has plenary powers over any territory in Puerto Rico's a territory and they're the ones that have to accept us. So I'm actually going there next week. I'll be there on the 9th and the 10th in DC and I'm starting to um, campaign for, for statehood. Nice. Yeah. I look forward to following that with you. Um, before, right. I, before I let you go, um, I want to talk quickly about your family. Um, you obviously married Jane. Is it Gettys? Yeah. And Jane was a former LPGA tour member, correct, yes. player? Pro golfer, yes. Was it? Did you guys ever compare notes about being out in tennis versus golf? Uh, no, actually. We have not. <laughs> Yeah, it would just be interesting to see the differences between how you're treated. Billie Jean King, in that Love All uh, Pride event they had before the U.S. Open, talked about how in women's tennis, the media is constantly asking women about their sexuality and ignoring men with the same question. I was wondering if maybe the LPGA, it was the same way. You know, I have no idea. I really don't. And it's just, it was kind of nothing. It was a non-issue then. I don't really know. You just have to ask Jane. But um, I don't know. Maybe there's there's not as many gay girls playing golf as tennis. I don't know. I have no idea. You, okay. like, you finally asked me a question that no I one got asked. it before this interview started, and you're like, I'm like, I don't care what you asked me. I've answered it before. Well, you've now asked me a question that no one has asked me before, and I don't have an answer for you because we never really talked about it. She's around. You want me to ask her? Uh, sure. Jane. Come here for a second. No, it's not. Um, it's off camera. I'm not. I got dressed up because I thought it was for camera. Okay. Um, we have a question here that I can't answer. You want to repeat the question? Hi, Jane. Hi. So my question is, obviously, Gigi being a lesbian tennis player, you being on the women's golf tour. Uh-huh. What was, was, I asked her if you guys ever compared notes, basically, on what it was like for you versus what it was like for her as a lesbian player? You know what? I think that it's so different now, but I think back when we were playing sort of the, you know, we were very fortunate because um, our world, at least in golf, and I think it's the same in tennis, was very insulated. And um, we were, especially on the golf tour, we were very, very close and very protective of each other. And so there was probably no better place for us to be because it was a very safe world. Like I said, our the players were very protective of everyone's privacy, um, but we were able to be ourselves in the locker room and with you know those were the people that were, we were, those were that was our family. Um, all the players that were on tour, we all traveled together, you know, pre the internet, pre cell phones, pre everything. 
all we had with each, was each other. And so it was a very, to me, it was um, sort of the best place that you could be, quite frankly. And it gave us the opportunity and all the players, straight or gay, it didn't matter, to just say, you know what? The fact of the matter is we want to focus on our sport and we want to fo focus on, you know, playing good golf or playing good tennis. And so when any anyone was asked by the press or anyone, it was it was always a non-issue. We never made it political. Yeah. yeah. And you know that they didn't have a Martina or a Billy that were out. Yeah. And out, so, yeah, that was probably. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't. We, so we never got, you know, we never like I said, our players were so protective that when the question ever came up, it was, you know, it doesn't matter. Let's talk about golf. So interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. <laughs> There's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's cool. And thank you. Thank you yeah. both for doing that. No Let me ask you one final question. I'll let you go. My, my final question is this. Um, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is for kids who are coming to terms with their own sexuality. Yes. If you can go back to, you know, your 12-year-old self, what's one thing you could tell yourself to help you come to terms with who you are and accept who you are quicker and, and healthier? Um, I think I would say, well, really at 12? Is that the age? I mean, you know, when you were younger. Okay, good. Because at 12, I was like, no clue that I was gay. But I think at whatever point you realize that you have, in, you know, have inklings or you have feelings for somebody of the same sex, at whatever point that happens for you, I think what's important is to tell yourself that it's absolutely 100% normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and everything is going to be okay. As long as you love yourself and you um, continue to strive each day to be a better person and do the right things, um, everything works out. If you have mean people around you or bad people around you, try to try to find, try to find uh, safe ground. Try to find people who love you and support you. Um, and then for the parents of those people listening, you know, I, I can promise you that your son or daughter would rather be straight they would rather be straight but sometimes you have no control over it and it's not easy it's not easy to be gay and and i certainly would not choose it i still to, to this day i still would not choose it um but it is what it is and i've uh so love each other and accept each other as you are and um it's a long life so everything everything happens for a reason and everything and all that's bad passes so hang in there and um move forward Thank you so much, Gigi, for coming on. And I'm glad I was able to stump you with a question. Yes. It made my day. That wraps up another episode of Level Playing Field. I want to once again thank Gigi Fernandez for being my guest. I want to thank Jane, her wife and athlete, for making an appearance and answering the question. And I want to thank you, the listener, for listening. Like on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook under LPF Pod. If you have any questions or suggestions for guests, email me at levelplayingfieldpod at gmail.com. Next week, I have beach handball player, former soccer player, Athena Del Rosario, and we had a great talk in our local library. Um, and I hope you come back and listen to that episode. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>